You know, I probably don't really need to say that, but I like saying it because they're already, they're already leaving. <laughs> well, and it, it's exciting for them. They know the magic words, and they know their snacks back there. So, But uh, good morning, I'm, and I'm very happy to be here this morning. And uh, as we continue our study through the book of Acts, uh, and uh, it's been getting interesting if you've been with us for the last few weeks because uh, after a while, the Acts turns to basically follows Paul and his uh, adventures around uh, basically the known world at the time and all sorts of stuff. And it's going to get even more interesting and it's going to get a little more scary. And if, you get, if you're an immersive reader like I am, uh, some parts are just, I can't fathom it. You know, I can't fathom a shipwreck. Like, that's coming up. That's going to be cool, but scary. Uh, but it's, you know, it's one of those things where me as a, as a youth pastor, I think, man, this stuff's going to make a good story. You know, whenever something happens, I'm thinking, can this be a good story? For example, uh, the first church I ever worked at was a small town up in Kansas. And I remember it was, I was just there for the summer, a little summer job, helping out a youth pastor. And there was a, a girl who we were both the interns and. It was kind of a, you know, they send us to three weeks of camp, you know, all the things adults hate doing. Let's send someone who's college age and do it. That was my job. You know, it was like washing the vans. You ever washed a 15-passenger van? It's, you ever clean the inside of a van after a bunch of teenagers been in it? Yeah, that was my job, you know, that did that weekly. Uh, And you always find stuff you forget, you know, or you miss the week before. Anyway, besides that, but at the end of the summer, we... We were given a test. We had to plan, and he, the youth pastor, was not involved. He said, this is for you guys to do. An end of the summer bash, and it was supposed to be a big party to end summer and also get kids excited about the school year. So it was, we spent weeks planning this, and we were given a budget, and we had to stick to it. We were given uh, you know, money to advertise or rent things or have a we had to pick a location and activities and games and food and everything that makes a good party so for teenagers we we basically set out to rent the big inflatables you know the ones that you have to put outside and strap down and uh, stuff like that that can fit adults you know they'd be fun for adults but all sorts of stuff and we spent we got like the the budget was like a thousand dollars and we spent 998 we're like oh yeah we're good and we rented a building, like it was a downtown venue where they had like youth church and it was like an after school program building and we're going to use their stage and we're going to use their facilities. And then we called the city and said, we're going to use the block in front of the building and that's where we're going to set up. So it was going to look like a block party. Well then, you ever get that moment where it's like, ah, oh, this is going to be great, you're all excited, and then everything starts crumbling down and everything just does not work out. Well, that's exactly what happened, because it was the morning of. We show up at the building at 8. There's someone supposed to meet us there, let us in, so we could set up. And it's locked, and there's no one there. And we're like, okay, well, let's call up and figure this out. Call the guy who we talked to three weeks ago when we rented the building, and he's like, oh, yeah, you guys rented the building. Well, the walls and the ceiling are being redone. Yeah, you, sorry. So... We had a day to plan a party and let everyone know that it's moved, and we had to stick it in the church basement, which I don't know. It's an older church and an old church basement, and I don't know if you've ever been in an old church basement, but 
they're not fun. They're kind of they're kind of like fancy dungeons, you know, and they're it's like where potlucks go to die sometimes. I feel like, but uh, that's <laughs> but that's what we ended up having to do. And it was the whole day we we're trying to make plans and trying to figure out how we can use the stuff we bought and just how to make things fun. And we went in with this mindset that uh, this is just how it is. And uh, I don't know if you've ever had that feeling where you go into it just thinking, this isn't going to go well. This isn't going to go well, and this shouldn't, because it's obviously nothing we planned for. And uh, that's the mindset I get when we see Paul in, uh, in basically this part of Acts. The whole thing is kind of, it's just going downhill. It looks like it's going downhill. There's no way this should go well. Because last week, Bobby was in chapter 22, and there was a lot going on. He, Paul went and preached, and all these people, like, ganged up on him and started beating him up. <laughs> and it caused such a commotion that the Romans are like, what's going on? These people are rioting in the streets. Let's go figure this out. And it was really, and it's really funny when you think about it because they go and find a bunch of guys beating up one guy and they, they arrested the guy they were beating up because obviously he caused it, you know. So <laughs> they grab him and they take him and they arrest him and they're like, all right, we'll take care of it. And they go to get ready to start like flogging him and beating him. And he's like, no, I'm a citizen. You can't do that to me. So that, and he's like, well, all right, never mind. And what'd you do? And they're kind of stuck in this little confused area. It's like, what'd you do to get all these people mad at you? And I, I, th I find it funny. It's like, you're blaming the guy who's getting beat up. <laughs> but it's a, it is what it is. Uh, so that's where we're going to be in chapter 23. We're going to jump a little bit before. And verse 30, kind of give you a little context of what's going. In verse 30 of 22, it says, The next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Uh, so this is kind of interesting because he's obviously confused and he's like, what is going on? Because uh, normally as a commander of Rome, you don't have to associate with these people at all. They're kind of, they, you allow them to rule themselves, make their own laws, and do their own thing. But he's like, who's to blame? That's what he's, that's his whole goal is keeping peace. So who's to blame? He's trying to figure that out. So he calls an informal meeting with the Pharisees and Sadducees, and this is not normal. He's normally only the guy in charge of this group, the Sanhedrin, the, the chief high priest. Normally he is the only one who calls meetings. So this is weird. So a non-believer organizes this meeting and basically gives Paul a reason to stand before these guys who hate him already and be like, let's figure this out. It's kind of like throwing, you know, a fish to sharks and be like, let's figure out what's going on. Let's figure, let's watch what's going to happen. But uh, so that's where we're going to be at the beginning of Acts 23. And so it says this, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. And at this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. And those who were standing near Paul said, You dare to insult God's high priest? And Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, 
do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. I'm going to take a, take a second and pause right there because there's a lot going on, and Paul's seen this kind of before where, you know, they just don't like him. And anything he says, they're going to find something to hate him for it. And uh, there's a lot going on. And these men, and I, I find it funny, you, these men are supposed to be the intellectuals of the community. They're the high priests. They're the best of the best in terms of they know the rules. They follow the rules. They, and in fact, they're supposed to be teachers of the rules. And yet, when, as soon as they hear something they don't like, someone smack him. You know, it's like, I hear that at middle school when I sub. It's like, hey, this kid didn't say something I like. Smack him. I'm going to smack you. That, these, probably, these guys are probably 50 to 70 years old. Oh, come on. But anyway, uh, Paul answers back. That says that God will strike you and calls him a whitewashed wall. Which, by the way, insults, probably not the best, but it has deeper meaning. I mean, he, I, I think he could do better. But uh, it reminds me of when Jesus, you know, he called out the Pharisees on their hypocrisy and said, you guys are whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you look great, but inside, you're dead. Like, that's, oh, that's pretty good, too. But uh, he's actually quoting the prophet Ezekiel. In 13, in Ezekiel 13, 10 through 12, it says, Because they lead my people astray, saying, Peace, when there is no peace. And because when a flimsy wall is built, they cover it with whitewash. Therefore, tell those who cover it with whitewash that it is going to fall. Rain will come in torrents, and I will send hailstones hurtling down, and violent winds will burst forth. And when the wall collapses... Will people not ask, where is the whitewash you covered it with? You know, this is probably one of those insults that you have to stop and think and be like, is that an insult? I don't know. But I still see it as like, it's brilliant. He's saying basically, you guys are weak, and this is proof. As soon as you hear something you don't like, you can't have a civil discussion. You just, someone smack him. That's, yeah. But he's calling out them as hypocrites. He's calling them hypocrites because this is, it's just what they are. They, they are so uh, gotten into so much of their authority that they abuse it and they can say whatever they want with no repercussions because no one will stand up to them because they use their number and authority as a weapon. And, uh, <laughs> and at these comments, those people called out Paul and said, don't you dare speak to this man. He's our God's high priest. And Paul, Paul in a moment, which is weird, because normally if he was a, still a Pharisee, he probably wouldn't claim mistakes. You know, they, they weren't that type. They could do no wrong in their eyes. But Paul says, you know, my bad, I didn't realize he was the high priest. And uh, there's a few different reasons why, why would he not realize this. And there's a, couple, there's a few scholarly reasons why he probably didn't realize that this guy was the leader. Uh, number one, he was probably just being sarcastic, like, oh, a high priest wouldn't act like that, so you're not really a high priest. So he's probably being sarcastic, which he's, Paul has been the type of guy to be sarcastic in the past. Um, another reason would be that he genuinely doesn't know who the high priest is. Like, since it was called by a commander of the Romans, there was probably no opportunity for this guy to put on his fancy high priest robes. So they're literally like, who said that? Which one of you? He, okay, it was him. He was a high priest. He probably genuinely didn't know who's in charge. Um, another one was, 
Paul probably knew Ananias and heard that he was the high priest, uh, but didn't want to recognize him as it. Very simple. It was like, oh, I know who you are, and you probably aren't, you aren't character enough. Have, you know, you're not proper enough to be the high priest. Or the last one, I think, is he is probably got caught up in emotions and was quick to fire back and be like, God will strike you. But at the same time, he, as soon as it left his mouth, you know, you ever say something and as soon as it leaves, you're like, yep, that was a mistake. Maybe it was in that type of moment. He maybe just caught, caught up in things. Uh, but honestly, there's all, it could be a combination of all of them. All that matters here is Paul did what he believes and what God has called them to do, and he states the law. He says, it is right. We need to respect, have respect for authority. He's basically saying we have to have respect for authority. Um, because he states in Rome, which, uh, and he states it very clearly in the law, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. And uh, throughout this whole passage, I'm going to refer to uh, one of the popular letters he wrote to Romans because I feel like there's a lot of stuff that's going on around this time, not only this chapter, but through a lot of this uh, later parts of the books of Acts that I, uh, I think is inspiration for his other letters. And uh, he wrote in Romans, at the beginning, in verse 1, he says, let everyone, at the beginning of Romans 13, he says, let everyone be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So he is in this kind of weird moment where he's on trial, where they want... they. They would be happy if this guy was removed from the earth. But even in this moment, he acts on this principle that you are submit and you respect authority. Even if this guy, who by the way, this guy, Ananias, is not the best ruler, not the best leader. He's the type of guy, if you met him, you'd be like, oh, no one likes you. And it's obvious that he's that type of guy because if you, <laughs> there's a, some history on this. Uh, one of the Jews' own historians named Josephus wrote about the, the first and second Jewish-Roman war where the, basically at Jerusalem and all the Jewish people rebelled against Rome, and they were like, we're going to do our own thing and we're going to fight you for independence, and it failed, like, gruesomely. But he wrote in the first Jewish and Roman war, far after this, that Ananias was still the chief priest, and his own people hated him so much because he kept leaning toward the Romans. He would work with the Romans. He would take advantage of his own people for the sake of the Romans and for his position that his own people ganged up on him and killed him. So, that, yeah, you're talking about a guy who was hated by his own people, not the best guy, allowed a lot of violence, allowed a lot of uh, abuse of authority by the Romans. And uh, so he was not the good, a good guy, but he was in authority. He was in a position and uh, Paul, just even though he's being insulted and mistreated, still shows respect, not for the person, but for the position. So, uh, man, even though he had a, basically calls out the hypocrisy of these men, it is still clear that he still is obeying God, obeying the law set before him, and he, this law that God set for his people, he still follows it. 
And he's pretty adamant about following it because in his letter to the Romans, he told them, he basically expressed respect authority even if they don't respect you. Um, and I think of that as Jesus, what, what Jesus taught. Jesus was very clear and very adamant about going the extra mile. Like that was part of his uh, sermon on the Mount where he talks about the rules that they have always known, the law. You know, he says stuff like, uh, you know, you know, thou shall not kill. I, well, don't even hate people. You know, you shouldn't even hate people. I mean, no, everyone knows not to kill. Even people who don't believe in God would be like, yeah, it's wrong to kill people. But Jesus has always been about going the extra mile. And if you read it, you can see it. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42, it says, You've heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And by the way, this is a, probably a direct reference to how Romans treated people they were overlord of. They would often you know, have Roman soldiers carrying their gear, and they're going from one place to another, or traveling from one town to the next. They literally would grab a guy and say, hey, carry my gear for me, and you have to, because I'm in authority and you're not. That type of thing. Real life example. Jesus, on his way to crucifixion, was carrying his cross when he couldn't anymore. Hey, Simon, pulled a random guy out of the crowd, carry the cross. And Jesus is saying, if you have this mindset of a servant, of God's servant, you would, when called on to ask and to carry things one mile, go two. It's that idea of you are a servant to others. I think that's where Jesus was getting at. And he was all about going the extra mile. And if you apply that to authority... You want to submit to the authority of God? You want to do what he calls you to do? Submit to the authority around you. Go that extra mile. Do what those around you call you to do. Now, the disciples did make one exception at the beginning of Acts chapter 5 when God calls them to go and testify and share. And the Jewish leaders are like, no. They said, well, we obey God rather than man. The exception being, if, God, if anyone calls you to go against the word of God or the commands of God, that is when, in Acts 5, they say you obey God other than man. But at the same time, I think of us as believers, we are to respect the authority around us, whether it's bosses, teachers, for, us student, for the, you students, uh, you know, all the, just any authority around us, we have to respect it, even if we don't like them, especially if we don't like them. Because I feel like that is Christ-like. That is submission. And submission is doing it even if you don't want to do it. But Paul is presenting himself here before the Sanhedrin. At this time, he is respecting authority and just proves, continues to prove that, they, that he is following the law and they have no basis for the accusation against him. Like they have nothing to call out on him. Which he knows. Which he knows and he's going to use it and he's going to continue in his personal defense. So in verse 6 it gets real interesting. Whether by convenience or intentional, oh man, he... He causes some chaos. So uh, verse 6, it says, Paul, 
knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. <laughs> and, the, and I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. And when he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And there was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away by force and bring him into the barracks. And the following night, the Lord stood near to Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify about me in Rome. So Paul basically goes up and speaks his mind. I find hope in the resurrection of the dead. And I don't know if he was going to continue. You know, we don't really know that. Or if he did this to intentionally split the group. You know, I think back to like a couple years ago when I had Thanksgiving, and normally people say, oh, Thanksgiving's the worst. Oh, families always argue. Well, it was just too nice. You know, everyone was very happy. And to throw a knife in the whole party, I said, so who would everyone vote for? <laughs> you know. I don't, know if it, I don't know if Paul's like me and did that, but, I mean, it didn't go anywhere. I promise. I didn't do it intentionally. Um, but Paul testifies in, the re- in his hope of the resurrection of the dead. That is exactly what he's been preaching, the resurrection of Jesus. And <laughs> you got a group of intellectuals. Remember, these are all the guys who are in charge. They're smart. They've been studying this stuff for years, and they are mightier than thou, holier than thou, and all of a sudden, they all, at one point, they were all like, we hate this guy, and he should be dead. They tried to kill him already, and now they want to kill each other. (laughs) I mean, convenient either way, but at the same time, (laughs) all it takes is one idea for people to go at it. That's all it took is one little phrase, resurrection of the dead, die. Yeah, Mike Middle School. I mean, let's be be real. I don't know. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> but and I'd say we, I say this is a bad example, but I feel like that's a really real example of today. Like, look at how divided we are. And I think back to everything Jesus has taught us and everything He has said, and I think it's always been clear that we should not be surprised by the division in this world. We should not be surprised by division. He, was, he gave multiple examples of what it's going to look like. Because uh, you look at today's church, all it takes is one idea as well, and a church will split. You talk about stuff like, hey, you say the magic words in the wrong place, and people are going to be angry. Contemporary worship. Whoa, careful. <laughs> Some places might explode. Uh, it's all it takes. And people just can't have a civil discussion sometimes. But Jesus stated it pretty plain. Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 37, he says, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. 
I come to set a man against father, daughter against her mother, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus kind of warned us of the cost of being a follower. And he kind of said, he's like, when you put anything else above me, you're not my disciple. You're not worthy of being my disciple. And when you do put Jesus first, it's going to look like you're intentionally causing division. And he said it again, and in Luke 14, he says, verse 26, it says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, or children, brothers or sisters, or yes, even their own life, that person cannot be my disciple. He's basically saying, he's like, if you want to put Jesus, you want to put God first, this is what it's going to look like. It's going to look like Jesus is your top priority and everything else is below it might even look like you hate your wife in comparison to how much you love Jesus. It's going to look like you hate everyone else in comparison to how much you love Jesus. And you've got these Pharisees who basically blinded themselves with their own power, their own authority, and their own idea of peace, that the idea of Jesus and hope in the resurrection and anything Paul is preaching about, oh, that's just wrong. They, they, just, they do not agree. And here's the deal. When you go from putting others first to putting God first, people won't understand it. People will not understand it. They'll look at you and think you're crazy. And to be honest, that's kind of not wrong. We're crazy. I mean, crazy about who God is and who Jesus is. I mean, that's a good thing to be crazy about. But Luke continues in, his, in this testimony that Paul gives, and uh, we kind of see a little bit what happens because God came and spoke to Paul, and he said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Oh, wow. So I, I, it sounds like he's done. It sounds like that he's basically saying, All right, you did your job. You almost got murdered. Well, I mean, the Romans came and yanked you out, so you're good. We're going to move you on to the next place. So he continues in, a, a chap, in a Acts 23, verse 12, and it says, The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders, and they said, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition, petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about this case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. And when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So we took him to the commander, and the centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. Very confusing, but it's all right. Uh, the commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside, and asked, What does he ha want to tell me? And he says, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. But don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed 
the young man and cautioned him, don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. So I come back to that whole idea of authority and a little kind of a history lesson on the Romans. They, at one point, conquered Jerusalem and kind of took control, and they were like the overlords and authority. Kind of like the if you know, a foreign country took control of us and then brought their own police force. That's how it was. But they let us do everything we normally do. Uh, but they kind of just walked around. They abused their authority. But normally you just learn to live with them and do their own thing. And so they weren't really liked. They were just there. They were like the guys you call on if, if there's nothing else to do and there's no other way to fix something. They're like, all right, call the Romans, and they come and fix everything. So I'm not 100% sure, but I think it was around this moment was the inspiration for what Paul wrote in Romans 13, verse 4. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. Now we had one ruler, the chief priest, and then we got the Romans. Chief priest didn't wear a sword. Romans wore swords. So I don't know who he's talking about, but I can only imagine that the salvation was not the chief priests who are basically scheming to have him dead. So who is Paul's salvation? The Romans. The Romans are the ones that are basically, they're the ones that protect him. They already went in, and when he was about to be ripped apart, they're like, all right, grab him and take him back. We can't let anything happen to him because he's a citizen. These soldiers have forever been a symbol and a reminder that the Jews are not independent, that they are not their own country, that they belong to something bitter, that they, they have overlords. That's, always, that's how it's always been. But at the same time, there's this reoccurring theme throughout the book of Acts, and it's really throughout the whole Bible. If you look at hard enough, it's basically this, is that even though bad things happen, whether it be sins, mistakes, or even you are conquered and you have people who rule over you, doesn't matter because God can still use the bad for good. God can still use the bad for good. And that's basically what he does with the Romans is he uses them as Paul's salvation. He uses them to protect Paul and to move him on to the next part of his calling. You know, this is throughout the whole Bible. There's always instances where God uses bad for good. He uses sins as lessons to turn men into better godly men. One of my favorite stories is the story of Joseph. You guys know that story, you know, a brother who was despised by his brother because he was the favorite. And then he was sold into slavery when they wanted to kill him, and they said instead they sold him into slavery. And through countless years, it took him. Eventually, he, got, he went to slavery, and then he went to prison. And eventually, he landed himself in front of Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, and found himself in authority, the second in command over all of Egypt. And then who comes knocking years later when a famine hits? The brothers who sold him into slavery. And they come to him, and they can't recognize him because it's been so long, and they think he's dead, and he's gone, and they'll never hear from him again. And then he reveals himself, it is me, you tried to kill me. And instead of answering eye for an eye, he says in Genesis 50, verse 20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to 
to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Man, God has a way of using something bad for good. You know, now he's taking uh, Paul. He has testified in Jerusalem. Everyone knows he's been there. And then he's going to whisk him away to Rome. Romans chapter 8, what Paul wrote about. Verse 28 says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God uses Roman soldiers, the commander, not also not the best of guys, and even the threat of death. Like Paul was at risk. These people have made an oath not to eat or drink. By the way, I wonder if they starved. Just, just, a, just a thought. Because he obviously, they didn't kill him. But he uses that to just move Paul along in his journey. Like God has a way of taking something bad and bringing something good out of it. So it continues in this chapter, and as it nears the end, we see that things aren't perfect. Things are never perfect, and people aren't perfect, but still God is visible. So verse 23, it says, the centurion, then he called, or the the commander, he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. And he wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned he is a Roman citizen. That's not what happened. Remember, he came because there was a disturbance and they grabbed the guy they were beating. And then as he was about to beat him, he's like... Paul said, I'm a citizen. So it's a little out of order. Talk about the scheming. You know how people kind of scheme to get good jobs and earn favor with their bosses? Yeah, it was a trick as old as time, I guess, right here. And that's what he says. I rescued him. No, you showed up and arrested the guy they were beating. That's, come on. All right. And he says, I wanted to know, in verse 28, I wanted to know why they were accusing him. So I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that their accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers, carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night and brought him far as Antipatris. And the next day, they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. And when the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Sicilia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. So there is a whole lot going on, and it's very clear that This is just a story of a man being kept out of danger and taken and being protected because of his citizenship. Or, or it's a whole bigger story of how God can use bad for good, of how even at the harshest times we're supposed to respect authority. (laughs) And it's just of how divisive and how much division there is in the world 
even in places where people should be on the same side, even when there are people who are scheming, they turn out to be the good guys. It's, there is so much going on, and the more I read this, and the more I look, read the whole book of Acts and the whole New Testament itself, the more I see how God works. And the only thought I can come to is that God is just bigger. God is more powerful. God is better than I could have ever thought possible. And I think the, uh, the real idea is just that God is always more. God is more than we can imagine. He is working through so many things. He is using people like the Romans who, by the way, think about this. These Romans, the soldiers that, who basically probably whisked away Paul, who saved him in the Sanhedrin, in the temple, basically the ones that came to his rescue, if they were in Jerusalem now, they were probably, some of them, not all, some of them were probably there years ago when a certain man was being crucified. Some of these soldiers were probably there or they were part of the crucifixion of Jesus. That thought blows my mind. That these are some of them, and it's, I have no way to prove it. Same soldiers, same city. Some of them may have killed Jesus. And they were Paul's salvation? So this man, we have Paul, this man went from pursuing Christians to now testifying about Jesus to his own people, and then to the Gentiles, back to his own people, and now God's calling him to go testify to a governor of Rome. It's not a story of, uh, we're going to move this up the chain. It's like God's saying, I'm going to send you to bigger fish to catch. Like, this is how God works. This is how God works. He uses bad things to move people in the right direction. He can bring good out of bad. As long as we follow the commands he gives us, respect authority, respect others, and we shouldn't be surprised when things go wrong. Man, I think about all of that, and I just come to the idea that God is bigger, God is more than we could ever imagine. So, uh, real quick, back to that first story I opened up with, my, my first youth event. Because I, I wanted to end this, and it left you on a little bit of a cliffhanger of what we did, because we had one day to plan a party, and everything was going downhill. And uh, what had happened was this, is we had to put the party in the church basement. Very, it's not the best, it was just a kind of a low ceiling room, we, and we had three massive inflatables, and we could only use one, and it took up like half the room. So... They got, you know, as soon as we let them play on it, and then we had to inflate it and push it against the wall to make room. It was all sorts of chaos, but we went into it with this idea. We're going to do the best we can. We're going to pray about this, and we're just going to use this chance to give kids and us a chance to just hang out and love and have fun. So we, since we didn't have to rent a place, we spent that money on extra pizza, always a, always a plus, we played some gross games, you know, made them eat raw onions and uh, raw tomatoes. Kid threw up. That's a success in the youth ministry business, by the way. Just want you to know. <laughs> it was good, and the best compliment I think we got was I saw some girl post on social media, most fun party we ever got, my breath still smells like onion. I was like, yes, that was a victory for me. I was very proud of what we had done. Uh, you know, it is, man, I still think about it because, honestly, it didn't have to be as fancy as we made it. 
All we had to really just do is show these people we care, and by people I mean these kids I, I got to work with. All, I had, all we had to do was show them we care, we love them, and we wanted to give them a place to just be who they are. And we loved them and we respect, showed them some respect and gave them an opportunity to just laugh and have fun. And, uh, you know, I think God calls us to do exactly that. Res- show respect, love our neighbors. So as I call the worship team up and I get ready to close out, I'm going to leave you with a couple verses and a couple things uh, to talk about because the theme I keep coming back to is God is just more. God is more than we can imagine. And especially as we come to a time where I want to give you guys an opportunity to pray about life, pray what's going on. And uh, Jesus expresses that God blesses. Mark chapter 11, verses 22 through 25, it says, Have faith in God. Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, Go and throw yourself into the sea, and they do not doubt in their heart, but believes that it will, <laughs> that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Jesus was very clear. He's like, if you are called to live like a disciple, like, and if you hold true to what he calls you to do, I mean, Paul was very clear, God works for those who are called, and he works for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. And the best thing I can think of to leave you guys with this morning is out of Ephesians chapter 3. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, verses 14, it starts and says this, for this reason I pray before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives his name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through the Holy Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may... Be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, we may never be put on trial like Paul. We may never face a group of people who want to have us killed for our belief. It doesn't mean we can't realize that God is more than we could ever possibly imagine, what we can think of. Whatever we think of in terms of God, he's just more than that. Like that's what I see is he allows and he makes sure that we are on track no matter what. Whether it takes a threat of violence, whether it takes people wanting to kill us, even if he uses the local government to point us in the right direction, he's like, that's how he is. That's how he works. It doesn't matter to him. All that matters is what's in our heart. If we're obeying, if we're submitting, we're submissive to him because he has called us to do so much around us that we cannot ignore it.
So, I think the, the best thing we can do is remember what God spoke to Paul in this chapter and take this home with us tonight. And it says this, take courage. Verse 11, it says, take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. That's what he told Paul. He said, you're done here. I'm sending you to Rome. So I, I, my prayer today is you read, read Acts, and, if, and I pray you find yourself inspired, inspired to do the same thing he commanded Paul to do. Take courage and testify. Testify with your voice when you can to neighbors, coworkers, friends, and family. Testify with your voice when you can, but testify with your life at all times, at all times. So if you're here today and you have never made that decision that to follow God for the first time and you want to start testifying God with your life today, I'd happily talk with you. Or maybe you want to start over new today, I'd happily talk with you. Or if you just need prayer, you need prayer and uh, it's, a, it's a good time to pray. There's always a good time to pray. So that's a good time today. I'm going to pray. So when we take time to worship, I pray you, uh, my prayer is you remember how big God is and how he works for the good of all of us. Even then, when we don't see it, even when we don't like it, even when we don't want it, he is working because he is more than we can imagine. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, uh, we see the bravery of one man Lord, I pray we, that inspires us to, uh, to follow you each and every day. Lord, I lift up uh, all those who face struggles like this. They face division. They face harsh audiences. Lord, I pray that <laughs> no matter what we face, we testify you. We testify you with our words and we testify you with our life. I pray we always obey what you call us to, call us to do and I pray we always lift you up and make you first. Lord, I pray we remember that you are more than we can imagine. We could, you are more than we think. You are bigger than anything we could ever face. Lord, thank you so much for the, the hope we have in Jesus and I pray pray we cling to that and we cling to who you are and we grow to be better disciples. Oh Lord, we love you and praise you. In your son's holy name I pray. Amen.